This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we take our favorite horror films from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, and we put them on the examination table and we look at them through the lens of disability. We'll be looking at characters that represent the disability experience, and we'll also be looking at films that have themes that resonate for those of us with disabilities. My name is Nicole, I'm your host, and I'm so thrilled to have you here with me. I am doing things a little bit differently with this episode. Instead of looking at two different films to uh, frame our conversation, I'm going to be focusing in on one. And that film is 2018's Midsommar, directed by Ari Aster. I think that this movie is a very great uh, representation of the ways that various aspects of our identities can uh, intersect. You know, the way that uh, religion and our cultural background can help us shape our ideas around disability and can influence our own formation of our disability identity is something that's really important to discuss. And I think this film does some really interesting things in talking about that. Now, with all of that said, I do kind of have to issue a disclaimer. If you've seen Midsommar, if you've seen Ari Aster's previous feature film, Hereditary, the man likes to go deep and dark with his content. And that means that we are not, uh, you know, this isn't going to be a easy breezy light episode. We're going to be talking about some really heavy things. And we are going to be touching on things such as suicide, the right to die, eugenics. These are really complicated uh, and troubling topics to really uh, piece out. So I issue that disclaimer because I know that those are topics that some people may want to, uh, you know, not engage with. And I want to kind of give you that. Uh, that bit of info so that you can make the choice that is best for you. However, um, as challenging as those are for me personally, I do think it's a valuable conversation to have. So we will move forward, but just wanted to put that out there. The, you know, kind of the tag on to that and, you know, the tag on to all of these episodes is, again, disability isn't a monolith. We have so many aspects that inform our experience with disability and obviously this is all informed by my own experience um you know it's informed not only from you know my specific disability and my understanding of that but it goes into what we're talking about today the way that i was raised the community i was raised in um my cultural background, my religious background, 
all these things have some kind of thread into that, whether uh, it's always apparent or not. So, you know, this is just my take. Your take can be different, but it's equally as valid. So, with all of that pieced out, let's get into the conversation. I'm going to start the conversation where I always do with a plot breakdown from Wikipedia. Psychology student Danny is traumatized after her sister Terry kills herself and their parents by filling their home with carbon monoxide. The incident strains Danny's relationship with her emotionally distant boyfriend, cultural anthropology student Christian. She later learns that Christian and his friends, Mark and Josh, have been invited by their mutual Swedish friend, Pele, to attend a midsummer celebration at Pele's ancestral commune, the Harga, in Halsingland. The celebration occurs only once every 90 years, and Josh, also an anthropology student, wants to write his thesis on it. Christian had hidden the trip from Danny, wanting to break up with her before leaving, but invites her along after she finds out about it. The group flies to Sweden and arrives at the commune, where they meet Simon and Connie, an English couple from London who were invited by Pele's communal brother, Ingmar. He offers the group psychedelic mushrooms, and Danny has hallucinations of Terry while under the drug's influence. Tensions rise after the group witnesses an Adestupa, a tradition which sees two commune elders attempt to kill themselves by leaping from a cliff onto a rock. When one of the elders survives the fall, the commune members mimic his wails of agony and crush his skull with a mallet, while commune elder Siv attempts to calm Danny and her friends by explaining that this is a normal thing every member does when they reach the age of 72. The scene disturbs the group, but they decide to stay long enough for Josh to, to finish his thesis. Christian also decides to write his thesis on the Harga, creating a rift between him and Josh, who accuses him of copying his idea. While Simon and Connie decide to leave, an elder tells Connie that Simon had already left without her. Confused and suspicious, Connie decides to leave on her own. Later, a woman's wail is heard in a distance. After Mark unwittingly urinates on an ancestral tree and incites the fury of the commune, he is lured away during dinner by Inga, who seemed to be interested in him. That night, Josh sneaks into the temple to take a photograph of the commune's sacred ruined text, which an elder had previously forbidden him from doing. He sees a nude man wearing Mark's skinned face and legs and is hit over the head, after which his body is dragged away. The next day, Danny is coerced into taking more psychedelic drugs and ends up winning a maypole dancing competition, subsequently being crowned May Queen. At the same time, Christian is given more drugs after being coerced into a sex ritual designed to impregnate one of the younger females, Maja, while older naked female members watch. After discovering Christian and Maja having sex, Danny has a panic attack, during which the commune's younger women surround her and mimic her cries. After the ritual, Christian comes to his senses 
and tries to run away, but he instead discovers Josh's leg planted in a flower bed in Simon's body, which has been turned into a blood eagle, in a barn. Christian is then paralyzed by an elder. The commune leaders explain to Danny that to purge the commune of its evil, nine human sacrifices must be offered. The first four victims are outsiders, Mark, Josh, Simon, and Connie, lured to them by Pele and Ingmar, while the next four victims must be commune members, the two elders who died in the Atastupa, plus Ingmar and Ulf as volunteers. As May Queen, Danny must choose either Christian or a local villager to be the ninth and final victim. She chooses to sacrifice Christian, who was stuffed into a disemboweled brown bear's body and placed in a small wooden temple alongside the other live sacrifices and corpses. The temple is set on fire, and the commune members celebrate by mimicking the screams and wails of those being burned alive. Danny initially sobs in horror, but gradually begins to smile. So let's dig into the Atastupa. And I want to dig into the Atastupa because I think it is really the key uh, to understand how the Harga view life, how they view uh, tradition, how they view a lot of their kind of base uh, core values. And it's also the first ritual that uh, Danny, uh, etc., all kind of witness and view. So I think it's a really important place to start. So as a plot synopsis described, the Atastupa is the ritual where you have the two elders at age 72 that uh, complete suicide ostensibly by jumping off of a cliff onto rocks below. What the plot synopsis leaves out, and which I think is key as we understand uh, kind of the function of this ritual, is that the Harga view the life cycle of a human in relation to seasons. So from the ages of 0 to 18, you are in the spring of your life. From the ages of 18 to 36, you're in the summer. From the ages of 36 to 54, you are in the fall of your life. And then the winter of your life is between the ages of 54 and 72. Now, before we witness the Atastupa, uh, we get a sense of what is going to happen. And that is because it's part of a welcoming ceremony once uh, everyone has kind of arrived on uh, location. Siv, uh, you know, greets everyone and there's a very small, brief little kind of ceremony. And our two elders are there on stage with her. She hands them both uh, torches and says to them, uh, this high my fire, no higher, no hotter. This is really the precursor um, 
that if we're paying attention, uh, we're starting to kind of get the inklings that there's something uh, going to happen with, with these two people in particular. So we view the Atastupa, um, and afterwards, uh, Connie and Simon, the two travelers that Pele's brothers, um, brought along with him, are very upset by what they've witnessed. Uh, Danny and Christian and Josh, uh, less so Josh, because I think he's viewing this from a very academic perspective, are also very shaken by what they've seen. Um, but Simon and Connie have a very strong reaction or wanting to leave right away. Siv then explains that this is a normal part of their customs and that, you know, she herself will happily do it when it is her time. So all of that really lays the foundation of the Atastupa. We understand how it relates to kind of the life cycles. Um, but let's talk about what it means in terms of perhaps some disability uh, themes. So it's also a really interesting intersection. It, it puts us into the intersection of ageism and ableism. So our two elders that we see participating in the Antistupa by kind of our optics seem in relatively good health. Uh, they are able to get around. We don't see them struggling with the impacts of aging um, in our brief kind of views of them. This isn't to say that's 100% accurate. We don't know them. We don't see them interact with anyone. Uh, so we know nothing. But just from kind of our optics as outsiders, which I think would also translate to kind of the optics of the outsiders in the film, Danny, Christian, Josh. Um, and it should be noted that Mark uh, is not at the Atastupa. He is asleep. So, you know, they are also viewing this probably from a bit of that perspective as well. And, you know, we see two older individuals, but two older individuals that are in good health that have ended their lives in a very violent uh, manner. The key to connecting this to themes of ableism and ageism is not only connected with some of the comments that Siv has made, um, because we get the sense of what this ritual represents to the Harga. You know, you have lived your full life and uh, your contributions cannot exceed what they have. And so this is kind of your final step um, that's kind of expressed in that uh, flame quote that I, I referenced earlier. Uh, after 
the Atastupa as uh, the group is walking back to kind of the main site. There is uh, some back and forth with Danny and Christian. And Danny asks him, you know, are, are you upset by what you've seen? Uh, because one thing that's interesting about Christian is that throughout the film, he kind of has this, uh, this blank reaction to a lot of what is happening to him or around him. He doesn't really have any um, kind of heightened awareness or reaction to to some of the things going on, um, you know. But he, in kind of a, a condescending way, says, "Well, you know, this is this is part of their custom, and we may think it's weird, but you know, we put older individuals into nursing homes, and they probably think that that's messed up." So all of that together really lays out the intersect that I want to talk about, which is, you know, uh, disability is a life experience. It is something that regardless of how healthy um, and mobile and all of those things you may be now with age, uh, those things may not be the case. Uh, our bodies uh, begin to break down and we aren't able to get around as well. We uh, may develop conditions that often occur with advanced age, like Alzheimer's, dementia, things like that. So there's this current going through these comments of, you know, it's better that they've ended their life under their choice that they've done so in a way that um you know spared them from uh experiencing some of those uh, difficulties with advanced stage there's also this idea going back to what Siv said about uh no higher no hotter uh regarding their flame you know, when I think of what she's talking about here, I'm thinking the flame represents not just their life, but their contributions to the Harga community, the commune. Um, you know, part of living in a commune is everyone contributes. Everyone works together. And this is um, a, a huge point uh, that's hit on in this film as well. We always see... Uh, everyone kind of working together uh, to keep this community going. And, you know, there are comments made uh, by Harga uh, members uh, early on when they're talking about, you know, everyone uh, participates in, like, the raising of children. So, you know, there's an infant uh, in the film that, we see in a couple of scenes, we have no idea who their parents may be because everyone is participating in the rearing of the child. And so that's a, a common theme that you see within this community. And the Atastupa, these comments all illustrate this idea that, you know, once you get to an age where some of these 
challenges that old age may uh, bring are, you know, approaching, it's better to, uh, it's better to consider that your contributions have been made and die as opposed to, uh, kind of pin that on the community. Uh, so it's just something that I think plays out a little bit, um, not explicit, but kind of an undercurrent, um, of some of those comments that are made. Obviously with the Autostupa, there's this, um, you know, we get into this idea of the right to die. And when we, uh, as Westerners in the U.S., particularly when we think of the conversations around right to die, it's usually around individuals that have been diagnosed with terminal illness, um, you know, terminal forms of cancer, etc. that, you know, they have been given uh, perhaps a very uh, limited time to live, and instead of experiencing a lot of pain, discomfort, um, you know, they will uh, go down a path of assisted suicide. Obviously, this was in the news um, in a big way, uh, I want to say in the early 90s, with Dr. Kevorkian. Well, that was kind of his, his stamp. And so it's something that I think we wrap our heads around. So, you know, as we are looking at how this impacts identity and how culture plays into this, it's not something that's a foreign idea to uh, Westerners, to, uh, to those of us from America, because we, it's an idea that I think we understand that's been part of the dialogue but it's uh kind of framed in a different way within this community while we've looked at this through the lens of age obviously it makes uh, a connect to disability as well because this is all looking at a person's value and placing that value on how they contribute to the community I'll talk a little bit more specifically about that in a moment, but I just want to lay that out uh, for this as well. You know, this is a community that's really uh, focused on uh, communal living, on uh, group work, and the efforts of all to make this uh, commune operate and to uphold its values. And so if, you know, either someone of an advanced age um, is not able to contribute in a meaningful way, you could see where uh, that same assessment may be made of someone with a uh, disability, um, someone that gets sick. You know, if I'm not able to, uh, to use a very Western quote uh, or phrase to pull my own weight, uh, you know, how does that impact my value and my place within the commune? 
but to get a better picture of how this directly connects to disability, we really have to take a look at the character of Reuben. Reuben is the oracle um, of the Harga commune, uh, kind of a prophet. And we uh, don't really have any scenes where we interact with him or engage with him or we see other uh, commune members engage or interact. We only get a couple of shots of him in scenes and uh, we get an explanation of Reuben and his role when Josh, the character that is doing his thesis on the Harga, um, when he's speaking to the elder and is kind of getting the information about uh, kind of their customs and their sacred texts, the Ruby Rodert. So let's talk a little bit about who Reuben is. So as the elder is explaining to Josh, Reuben is an oracle or kind of a prophet. And he is an individual with disability uh, disabilities as all oracles are. We learn that um, the oracles are products of intentional inbreeding. And that's, uh, you know, kind of the direct quote from the elder. Uh, so that's a lot to, to kind of think about. Um, but uh, Reuben and the oracles will create uh, pieces, um, drawings or paintings or will uh, somehow uh, put visions that they see um, into a creative format and then these are interpreted by uh, the elders. So the couple shots that we get of Reuben, we see him painting or drawing um, and it appears that he's lying in a bed. Again, this is someone with uh, some pretty significant uh, disabilities. So um, the first thing that I think is useful um, in thinking about Reuben is that this goes back to this trope of sorts where a character with a disability, particularly one with significant uh, disabilities, is uh, used as a device of shock or horror um, just by viewing them. And you see this with like Frankenstein's monster and there's countless other examples. There's an article um, that I will post in the show notes that talks a little bit about the history of this. It's a pretty brief article. It doesn't really go in deep into uh, its utilization in Midsommar, but it does reference it, and I think it's important um, just to kind of understand that history. Because the scenes that we get of him, uh, the views that we get of him are very shocking. You know, one thing that, uh, you know... Uh, I think it's pretty apparent with Midsommar that makes it very unique is that it's a very beautiful film. It's very bright. It's very colorful. Uh, almost no scenes happen 
in darkness um, outside of some of the opening and I think there's one or two scenes once they arrive uh, at the commune where it's done in darkness but um, the visual of uh, Ruben is I think used in kind of contrast to the beauty that we see um, within the commune. It's a very beautiful uh, location. Um, it's you know, very sunny. The weather is gorgeous. Uh, lots of beautiful flowers and scenery. All of that, I think, is kind of, you know, we see all of this. We become accustomed to seeing this. And then Ruben and, um, you know, the act of the Atastupa, which we talked about earlier, um, these moments of shock, of horror, are kind of heightened because they are done. We're seeing, we're seeing these things. These things are um, taking part in a very beautiful and bright setting, and so it it really does kind of go into that trope. Um, but I do recommend uh, taking a few moments to read. Uh, the article because it's kind of interesting. Um, the other thing that I think is important to talk about with Ruben is how it kind of fits in with what we talked about uh, in relation to uh, the two elders that uh, participated in the Anastupa and some ideas that we walked away from uh, with that regarding how the Harga um, kind of assess or place value on quality of life. You know, we have uh, these two older individuals that are apparently in good health, um, but are seen as not being able to, you know, as coming to the end of their life uh, cycle, of their ability to contribute to the commune. And so they end their life. Here, you have an individual that um, is able to contribute, um, but has um, some significant challenges. And um, we're not given any information about how that factors in to kind of the day-to-day -day workings within the commune. Uh, Someone with significant uh, disabilities is going to need additional supports. So how is that factored into, uh, you know, the community's work? Who is helping, uh, you know, to care for Ruben if he needs some additional supports or assistance? Um, what happens at a point where uh, Ruben can no longer... Uh, produce these works of art that the elders then uh, can interpret as part of their uh, sacred text. What happens if, as part of this, uh, I guess it can kind of be part of a ritual um, or are looked at as a ritual where, you know, the, uh, the oracles are products of uh, intentional inbreeding or incest you know what if a child uh, 
is unable to draw or write or produce something that can be interpreted by the elders? What, how is their value or contribution um, assessed in those situations? Uh, there's just a lot to think about that isn't really touched on, but it's interesting because it both kind of connects and fits with what we kind of understand, but then there's kind of these uh, bits that seem to go against it, or there's elements that we just don't know. Um, and then obviously we have to talk about just the idea of we are setting up the system where uh, individuals with disabilities are created, where that's the intent. Someone with health challenges is being brought into a world that may or may not have the structure to support them for this particular reason. And it's just... Uh, a very interesting and challenging thing to wrap our minds around. Now, much like how the Atastupa gave us a lot of insight to how the Harga uh, view life, um, the character of Ruben does that as well. And I think it also... Uh, brings us back to something that I talked about at the very, very, very beginning of this episode, which is how um, ideas and our identities related to disability can be informed by all these other uh, components, such as our cultural identities and religion. And so, you know, here we have a very clear example of how uh, the Harga view Reuben. He's an oracle. Um, they call him unclouded so that he is receptive to get these visions um, that they can interpret. Um, you know, it makes me think of my own uh, experience of growing up. And my parents were divorced at when I was born, essentially. Um, but uh, my mom, you know, uh, not very religious, but my father, uh, and my stepmother, uh, are extremely, extremely religious. And, you know, the way that, uh, my disability was, uh, treated in those homes were, uh, very different. Um, you know, my dad's face said that if you have a child with a disability, it's because you did something bad. Uh, it is a product of sin. And you can try to uh, go through these measures of healing the individual. So um, I would go through um, kind of these week-long um, revival camps where they would do all of these faith healing things. And, you know, when I was still, you know, an individual with an illness afterwards, um, you know, it was just, well, you are a product of sin. Um, and there's nothing that can be done. Um, God does not want to cure you of your, 
of your disease. And so you will have to live a lesser life where my mom's take was like, you're a person and so you have this and we will, you know, figure it out. We'll kind of go day by day and see what we can do to make sure you've got what you need to be a person in the world. Um, so religion and those types of things do kind of play into our overall ideas. We also need to talk about the community factor. And this is something that I touched on when talking about Jason and Leatherface in a previous episode. It's this idea of community supports. Now, with Ruben, we really don't know what his day-to-day consists of. We don't know how the Harga may uh, be there as a support system for him. Um, But, you know, as I mentioned in talking about Ruben, we never really see him engaged or interacting with any other member of the Harga. So it, to me, shows a kind of a stark contrast to the fact that, uh, you know, members of the Harga are usually uh, connected in a very uh, real way. We see them all working together. Um, you know, they kind of function as a really large group. Um, so the fact that we don't see that is uh, something to note. It also kind of goes uh, in to this idea that, you know, and and we're going to talk a little bit about mental health, even though, as I had mentioned before, that's not kind of my area of expertise. Um, The idea of family and community supports is something that, you know, this movie does hit on from the very beginning with Danny, her sister, and their parents. Uh, We understand that Danny's sister has a mental illness. She's living at home with the parents who are obviously there providing some supports. Danny is providing supports as well. Um, And that's one of the things I think that appeals to her as uh, she kind of gets sucked into the Harga commune is that she sees, uh, you know, a group that is willing to provide you this kind of unconditional understanding and support, which is something that she, she definitely needs. And we see these interactions, uh, within the commune, uh, pretty regularly. You know, there are a couple of mentions in the plot synopsis, uh, as part of the Atastupa or when Danny sees Christian and Maja, uh, having sex the community kind of helps and experiences the emotions attached to that together or with a person that's experiencing that emotion and a reaction to that um, so that they don't feel alone. They do feel that empathy. So it's a community that's very much built on this aspect of supporting all of its members, but we don't really see that with Ruben. A couple other things just to kind of tie up the uh, kind of conversation 
here. Ruben is not played by an individual with a disability. Kind of seems silly to have to state that because this is often the case. Any character that is uh, more than likely uh, portrayed as having a disability more than likely does not have a disability. Um, this, there are exceptions to the rule. Um, a Quiet Place is one that comes to mind right off the top of my head. Uh, our, one of our leads in that film has uh, a disability. She's deaf. So, uh, and I'm actually going to be talking about that film in a later episode as well, because I think, you know, it brings up a lot of ideas that are somewhat connected to what we've chatted about here, but uh, kind of look at them differently. So, uh, you know, we, we have that Ruben not portrayed by a character with, not portrayed by an actor, I'm sorry, with a disability. It's not to say that uh, you can't have... Uh, you know, some some issues, even if a person uh, with a disability is in a role. Um, there's, there, there's still maybe some uh, issues to discuss, but I think representation is always important in that regard. The other thing I'm going to hit on is uh, that Midsommar, uh, based off of the interviews that Ari Aster has given, based off of of what he was talking about as wanting to uh, discuss uh, about Midsommar, you know, disability is not on the top of that list. Um, this is in the film where he really wanted to dig into these specific topics um, or really kind of approach them with any kind of heft. This is really, you know, at its heart, a movie about a breakup and a movie about, uh, you know, how we work through mental health issues and mental illness. You know, these are the really prominent themes and ideas that Ari really wanted to tackle. So it's important to note that, you know, I, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I do have a tendency to um, factor that into how I think about a film. You know, if it's not something that... Uh, a director had forefront in mind, you know, of course the approach to a character or a theme uh, is not going to be as in-depth because that wasn't really what they wanted to put out there. So, um, something to think about with that. And on that note, I think that's a good place to wrap this episode up. As always, thank you so much for joining me. I know that this episode in particular, we talked about some pretty heavy stuff. Um, I know that I had to take a break there for a few minutes to uh, kind of re refocus and kind of compose myself um, because these are these are really difficult things to uh, kind of discuss. So. Uh, I really do appreciate you uh, being here for that. As always, this podcast is a very proud member of the Anatomy of a Scream Network. As I've said before, the uh, hits just keep on coming over there. Um, 
so many good podcasts, so much good content. Definitely check it out. Uh, I mentioned my love for Let the Bodies Hit the Dance Floor, but there's uh, just so, so much uh, that just continually seems to drop. Uh, there's the XOXO uh, horror podcast. There's Horror So Queer. Um, just amazing, amazing stuff. And I know that uh, if you like this, you're going to like all of that as well. So do make your way uh, over there to check that out. And while you're doing that, if you would be so kind to subscribe if you haven't already, and rate and review this podcast. Not only is it a great way to help people find me, because as I've said before, I am the new kid on the block. Um, you know, it's just nice to get that feedback. And my hope is that, you know, once those reviews start coming in, I can start integrating them into episodes. So that will be, I think, kind of a fun and cool thing to do. So with all of that said, thank you again for being here and until next time. The Anatomy of the Scream, Pod Squad.